And friends, would you please stand as we read this morning from Ephesians chapter 6. I'd like to read for us verses 10 through 17. Again, this is the Lord's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. This is the Lord's word. If you would please be seated, friends. Again, our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and pray that you would bless us. It would not surprise me that we would become uh, even greater under attack and dis distracted as we talk about the great destroyer. We ask, Father, that you would encourage and strengthen your people today, and we pray that you would bless your servant, that it would be faithful to deliver your word, and we pray that you would bless your people, that they likewise would be faithful to hear your word and to... Um, respond to it in a way that is pleasing to you. We pray that you would keep us from hearing things that aren't said and help us to hear what is said, and we pray for all of this, for your Spirit's blessing and anointing on your people. We ask that the kingdom of Satan would indeed suffer great injury and that your people would be equipped uh, that we might serve you more faithfully. I humbly ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was probably five or six years ago I was standing in the shower somewhere around the five o'clock hour. And I heard the most shrill scream. Uh, it, 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 I'm standing there in the shower, hot water is hitting me in the face and over the head. And after I heard this scream, it sent chills up and down my back. And I thought to myself at that point, I sure hope there's air in our water pipes because the only two people in our house was my wife and myself. I thought, well, it must have been Andrea having a bad dream. Later that day, I was talking to my wife. She goes, yeah, it was the weirdest thing. I heard you scream this morning. And I thought to myself, and I think I even said to her, uh, I didn't scream. <laughs> I thought that was you. Um, it was a very bizarre thing. I'll just say that. And in our house, during our years here in Lander, we have had um, a number of very weird things, unexplainable things take place in our house. Now, I want you to know, I'm not a guy who's given to these things lightly. Someone told me once that a Christian video or a Christian tape was eaten in their tape deck. Remember tape decks in the car? It was a Christian tape, and this guy says to me, well, I think the devil ate my tape, and I thought, could have been you just had a dirty head in that tape player. 
I'm not one who's given to these sorts of things lightly. I don't want you to think I am. Um, Charles Hodge and his systematic theology summarizes the difference between Luther and Calvin. Remember, Luther's famous for throwing ink bottles and things and shouting at the devil because he believed, and, and this is, this is, I'm just putting it in the vernacular, he believed there was a demon behind every bush. So he's constantly shouting at the devil. The devil's always opposing him. Calvin was a much, uh, took a more mild approach. He says, try to explain away things first from natural causes. But then if you can't explain it naturally, then don't discount the fact that we live in a spiritual world. Um, I have a, a similarity with uh, the lady I'm about to quote. Her name is Eowyn Stoddard, and she's married to a missionary. Um, they, they're church planters in Germany, and she writes in an article called Demonology 101. She writes, I'm, I'm working in a post-communist dead atheistic region, and I'm summarizing this. She says, it was the shock of coming face to face with demonic forces beyond our comprehension. She says, numerous strange events had transpired. Leaders of urine were poured into our stroller. Blood spattered on our apartment door. A small hole drilled into our front door, indicating a planned break-in. The hole is used to insert a small probe camera. Much sickness, she says, poor sleep for us, and even the sense of an evil presence in our bedroom. The strangest thing was this. At first, we thought we must be imagining things. Now, you need to understand something. This is a woman who's reformed. She's not... She's not charismatic. You know, there are some segments of the Lord's church that they're, they're given to these things. This is, this is reformed people. She says, we thought we must be imagining things, but the, th the, horrid clim uh, the horrid climax was the nightmares that tormented our two-year-old son. For many months, he'd wake up screaming murder, and we could not settle him back down easily. At two and a half, he was finally able to verbalize what he had been dreaming about for the past few months, one of his most vivid dreams was about a woman with black hair and red eyes who wore only a bra and black pants and would offer him a basket of rotten fruit and force him to eat this fruit. His nightmare was X-rated, not a typical toddler being chased by a bear dream. Satan was not playing fair, she writes. Um, she goes on to say, in seminary, I, I must have missed that class on Demonology 101. And I can say that in reform circles, we don't oftentimes focus upon these things. We're, we're very, um, very heady sometimes in, in our theology and our approach to theology. Did I not tell you anything to distract? It's never happened before. She points out that our theology is a wonderful theology. It gives us, it provides us a framework for understanding how life works. She says, the devil is bent on destroying Christians and their testimony and stopping the progress of the gospel. She said, because we were so overwhelmed with our situation, we needed help. We called our teammates to come pray with us. While their child was asleep, we prayed at my son's bedroom windows that God would not allow any evil to enter into his room and that he would sleep peacefully. The next morning, she writes, I asked him, did you have a nightmare last night? 
His toddler answer was flabbergasting. He said, yes, but this time, the woman was outside my window, and she couldn't come in. Most often, we aren't given the privilege of seeing when and how God is acting in the supernatural world, but this time we saw it. And she says it's from there that she started to understand that the work that they were engaged in, and she said every week when we were supposed to have a Bible study in our house, every week one of their five children got sick. She goes, without fail. She goes, we just started to plan on this, that this is, this is what happens. I'm amazed. I sometimes think to myself, isn't it interesting that the snowstorms usually come Saturday night? Um, we see these things that are going on. And, and here, um, I, I, I want to call attention to the obvious, because I believe that the obvious is probably sometimes the thing we're not paying attention to. And I think we need to re recognize and realize that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. You look at the sickness, you look at the hardships, you look at all the things going on. We are truly engaged in a, a spiritual battle. And we would be unwise, unbiblical in our thinking if we ignored it. And clearly, the Apostle Paul believed it was important for the church. That's why these verses are here that we would understand just a brief summary um, here. In chapter 1, the apostle would speak of the blessings with which we have been blessed in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He speaks of the prayers for the growth of the Christian, that we might come to know the Lord, the hope of his calling, and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, of his power and position, of the Lord's power and position and propensity to bring this inheritance to pass. In chapter 2, we are told of our spiritual destitution, how we are dead in our trespasses and sins, of God's great mercy, of his amazing grace, which has united the sinner to God by the merit of Jesus Christ alone. And now how the Lord has united Jew and Gentile into one body, one household, God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And Paul would go on to say in chapter 3, that the apostles made that this apostle had made known this mystery which was hidden in years and generations past, but now the wisdom of God made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And he prays, he prays that the Lord's people would come to know it deeply. Listen to verses uh, 14 through 21 in chapter 3. He writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then he says, Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Chapters 4 through 6 then is all about how do you live out this Christian faith? 
And he begins in chapter 4 by saying, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Talking about the preservation of unity and, and talking about making use of the gifts of blessing one another, building up one another in the things that are taught, no longer walking like the Gentiles, putting off sin, putting our deeds um, putting on rather appropriate deeds to salvation, being imitators of God as beloved children, walking in light, not in darkness, exposing the deeds of darkness, walking wisely and not foolishly, being filled with the spirit, uh, which brings a change in how we talk to one another, how we subject ourselves to one another, speaking to wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters. The gospel, my friends, makes all the difference or it should make all the difference in our lives. It should make all the difference in our lives. The question is, why hasn't it? Why hasn't this town been turned upside down? Why not Riverton? Why not Washakie? Right? It's just a matter of replacing bad doctrine with good doctrine. But it's not as though we are computers. You find a corrupt file, you delete it, you upload a new one, or you download a patch to fix an error. We don't act this way with as people. Um, and it makes you wonder sometimes if we've neglected, you know, uh, missionaries on the mission field will say the Westerners, meaning us, we don't account for spiritual problems. We think like Westerners. Everything's scientific. We figure out everything. You just replace one thing with another thing and boom, the problem's fixed. We are locked in a conflict. We live somewhere between heaven and hell, and we are engaged in a spiritual battle. Everything the Lord calls us to believe, everything that is true and right, every obedience he calls us to and that we would attempt to render is opposed. And the truth is assailed. Our minds, our beliefs come under attack. Temptations abound apart from our own flesh. And instead of Putting off lying and immorality and unwholesome speech, we lie, cheat, and steal. So that the things we want to do, we don't do, and the things we don't want to do, we do. And the witness of the church is greatly harmed. And so we come to this chapter 6, verse 10, and Paul would say, finally. Finally, a last word, but certainly not an insignificant word. And here he is giving to us instructions that we are not unimposed, so that um, instruction that we are not unopposed in our work, our calling as the Lord's people or his church go opposed by this spiritual realm. Again, because we are locked in a spiritual battle until the return of Christ, how are we to battle this? How are we to battle these things? That weird scream in the shower was just a reminder, all the half a dozen other things that have gone on in our house, just a reminder that we truly are engaged. And when I read this article by Eowyn Stoddard, I was reminded that, oh, I guess I'm not alone in these things. Friends, how do we battle? How is it that the Lord calls us to battle? It's clearly not enough that we just learn the catechisms. I love the catechisms. I love our standards. I think they're excellent. But it's not enough. You have to know how to battle. And what does he say in verse 10? 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You must be strong in the Lord and by implication and not strong in yourself, not high in yourself. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. A warrior must be strong and able to withstand his opponent. He must be skilled in the craft of battle. The world would say you must be high in yourself to think that you can handle whatever battle comes along. You can do so because of inner strength or a superb wisdom or insight. You can do it. You're just like the little engine that could. Just do it. Paul would warn in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. After our Lord told Peter and the other disciples that they would all fall away after he was taken, Peter responded, How? Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. How did that work out for them? They left. They did not resist or overcome the temptation to abandon the Lord, even though I am quite certain that they all meant well when they said what they did. My friends, you are not able to overcome temptations to doubt or enticements to sin in your own natural abilities. You may be gifted. You might have tremendous natural abilities given to you, but you do not have what it takes to fight this spiritual battle. You don't. I don't. We don't. Maybe it's because we have such a tiny view of who the devil is. Maybe it's because our theology is not developed in who Satan is. But if, if we truly understood, we would understand that we don't go at spiritual battles with our flesh and, and with natural abilities. The apostle therefore commands us, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Charles Hodge said, as a branch separated from the vine or as a limb severed from the body, so is a Christian separated from Christ. As a church, broadly speaking, the church in the United States is either full of unconverted people or babies. You either don't know the Lord or you don't walk very closely with the Lord. Listen to what James would write. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The apostle says, be strong in the Lord or become strong in the Lord. That is, in union with him, we find our strength. We find our strength in union with Christ. What is this strength? If you'll turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, listen to verses 19 through 21. He writes, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What is it? It is the power of the resurrection. Is it the power to raise the dead? You don't have that power. Have you ever tried to raise somebody who was dead? Have you ever tried to pick up a plant and pour water in it and you lift that plant hoping that, and it just flops over? 
I saw death one time very up close and personal. Um, I found my friend who had fallen and died of a brain bleed. I found his body, his purple body. You can do nothing. You can do nothing. You have no power. Paul would say it is the power of the resurrection. That is the power that is available to us for these spiritual battles in which we engage. The same power, the things that you can't do in your own, is the power that the Lord provides for us who are in him in order to engage the spiritual battle. How do we hold it? How do we lay hold of this power? First of my friends, it is believing upon the Lord Jesus, of course. It is union with Christ. It is faith in who he is. It is knowing him, knowing his word. It's trusting his word. It's obeying his word. It's praying that we will not fall into evil. It's praying for filling of the Lord's spirit to empower us from on high to not succumb to temptation. It is the power that God gives in order to flee like Joseph from Potiphar's wife. It's that same power that raises the dead, and that's the power that brings us victory. When the Lord taught his disciples to pray, as we have prayed this morning, he taught them, saying, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one. When on the Mount of Olives twice he asked his disciples to pray, he says, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. By this, friends, we enter into the battle that does rage, but it is not in our own strength. I, I laugh at some of these things. We, we always have to make some crazy thing. Oh, I've got a crucifix. I'm going to hold this crucifix, and it's going to drive the evil away. Or I'm going to eat garlic, and it's going to drive it away. Right? Oh, I'm going to pray to the saints, or I'm going to take this saint, and I'm going to bury him upside down. That's how I'm going to battle. All this Hollywood mishigosh should not be listened to. This is garbage. The Lord has given us what he said we should do. He has given us. He said that strength is available to us. And that strength is here. But you're going to be amazed at how simple and how childlike it is. As we in the next weeks continue to go through this. My friends, it is not in our own strength that we engage spiritual battle. But it is in the strength of the Lord and in his might. So he says in verse 11, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The armor. The Roman was familiar with the armor. Each piece was essential to his survival. He did not grab just the helmet, but he would grab the helmet and the breastplate. He would grab all the things that he needed because he understood that the whole armor was essential for survivability. The apostle commands, put on or clothe yourself in this armor, this full armor. What is it? And we will go into this in the weeks to come. Verses 14 through 17, listen to this. But as I read this, don't focus so much on the armor itself, the physical things that Paul is, is linking it to. Listen to what he says. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. How do you fight a spiritual battle? With truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. How do you fight a spiritual battle? With righteousness. 
And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Again, the gospel of peace. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the word of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let me read these to you again without the physical armor mentioned. How do you fight a spiritual battle? Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. And if we went down one more verse, prayer. It's very very succinct. And so we're given these things. They are defensive. They are offensive. Um, the means are God-ordained, and they're not originated from men. And they're given so that we will stand firm, and without it we cannot stand against the onslaught of the evil one. What are you facing in your life right now? What are the temptations? What are the struggles that you are facing right now? How are you battling these things? Are you leaning upon your own understanding? Are you saying, gee, I'm really struggling. I think maybe I'll go to the refrigerator and eat another sandwich. Or maybe I'll put on a movie so that I can numb myself. Do you actually pick up the word of God and start reading? And do you say to yourself, what would my God say to this? There are mornings where you get up and you say, I can't do this any longer. And the message plays over and over in your head. That's when you should be saying, that's not the truth. And then you remind yourself of the Psalms and you remind yourself of what the Lord says in his word because Satan is niggling you in your sleep. He's there. And friends, let me tell you, he's there attacking you just as much as he's attacking me. He's attacking the church. I'm telling you, the church in this nation is under attack spiritually. It is under attack. And we've got to be smarter than the devil. And the only way I know we can be smarter than the devil is to pick up the word of God and read it and be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and be seeking him on our knees fervently. Stand firm, he says, which means to resist or hold your ground. The church has lost ground. Doctrinally, morally, we've been pushed back and we've been beaten down. That's why I pray, friends, for revival. And when I pray, say, I'm praying for revival, in case some of you may think I'm praying for some ooey-gooey experiential thing, I'm not, I'm not interested in, in, in crying and shaking and all this kind of stuff. What we would like to see and what Edward said with the first great awakening is how do you understand or know when revival comes? It's when a man repents of his sin and he starts walking in righteousness. It's when taverns who promote drunkenness start saying, nah, we're not going to serve you anymore. Get your keister out of here. It's when they start promoting what's good and what's right and what's holy. You know when a person is born again from above because he loves the things that Jesus Christ loves and he lives for it and he lives to live for him. There's a lot of worldliness in the church. How do we fight it? How do we move and work against the schemes of the devil? First understand that there is a devil. There is a literal devil. Satan, our adversary. 
Both the Lord and his apostles speak of him in quite a literal manner. The Lord was tempted by him in the wilderness in Matthew 4. He speaks of him, credits him with harm to others. There was a woman who was bound for 18 years by Satan, who was oppressed. He calls him a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of lies. He traps people. He holds people captive to do his will. Peter would say, uh, in Peter, 1 Peter 5, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He was sinned from the beginning. The devil was responsible for getting some thrown into prison. In Revelation 2, he deceives the whole world. Revelation 12, he has great wrath. Revelation 12, 12. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul would say that Satan was the god of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, of Christ, who is the image of God. One commentator said this, Satan has been cast out of heaven. He is filled with fury and envy. He is bent on doing harm against God and his people. His purpose is, therefore, to dethrone his great enemy, Jesus Christ, and to see all people cast into hell. He walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He has a powerful, well-organized army and has established an outpost within the very hearts of those whom he aims to destroy. Understand that we have a real enemy, a true enemy. He hates Jesus Christ. He hates you. Understand, secondly, that being who he is, he is no ordinary foe. The apostle lamented that those who would come to destroy the church, saying, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants, who disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. He has schemes, he has methods, he has strategies and wiles, ways in which to get, us, to get at us, to sucker punch us, to destroy us, to undermine, to lampoon us. This, says the apostle, is what we are up against. Did you think that becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, a member of the body of Christ, did you ever think that it would be easy? Stop thinking that. You have a target on your back. Did you think Satan would give up without a fight? Don't think that. His whole purpose, my friends, is to destroy life. His whole purpose is to destroy your life. You see... You see, if your, if your theology remains in a book and you don't take your theology to bed with you at night and wake up with that theology intact, he's going to lampoon you. The greatest thing we could see as Christians is you take your theology and then you start to marry it. As I had a friend in seminary who said, we put sneakers on our theology. It's meant for walking. It's meant to put on and then engage life. And this is what this is what we want to see you do. In conjunction with what we're learning in Sunday school, it would be to take the theology, now how does this apply to your life? Now look at your problems through the grid of the things we were just saying. You know, we, we, we talk often in, uh, in our Sunday school class right now as we're going through the Confession of Faith, Chapter 1, the Word of God. Oh, I've got all this wonderful truth. Tim's doing a wonderful job. And he brings out the Roman Catholics. And he says, so here's the Roman church saying this over here. What should we be doing? 
gee, that's really neat. No, what you should be doing is when your Roman Catholic neighbor says, well, the Pope, you know, he made a declaration. You say, no, the theology says that the Pope is wrong, and here's what the authority is. It's God's word. And I go back to the word of God. You see that? You're applying the scriptures to everyday situations. This is what we want to see you begin to do with the, the trials and the temptations and the and, and, and the all of the things that are attacking you, we want you to see those things through the grid of scripture so that you can weather these trials, so that you can stand firm and not be shaken in your faith. That's got to happen. If it doesn't happen, friends, when, when, when persecution and tribulation breaks out in full, many people will fall away because they'll be trusting in their own strength, their own grit, and you will never withstand Satan's attacks. His whole purpose is to destroy life. He hates the Father, he hates the Son, he hates the Spirit, and he hates all who love Christ. So he will do all he can to keep you from Christ or to make you an ineffective witness of Jesus Christ. He is very tricky. He has a whole network in place. He comes as an angel of light. He will not come uh, in a repulsive manner, uh, manner, rather, but he will come as a thing of beauty of sense. It's what seems right. It's what seems good. It's what seems wholesome. Get your eyes off of Christ. Get you trusting in yourself, relying on self-effort. This is always what Satan does. Believing lies, um, we fall into these things. You say to yourself, I'm not so bad. Everyone sins. At least I don't sin like other people do or I haven't done what they have done. Or he presents us with religion, a religion of pomp and beauty, of works, inspiring confidence in all the wrong things, all to keep you from Jesus Christ. Or, as has been mentioned, um, he gets us to believe science, which is such an interesting thing, because science would never deceive us, would they? Trust the science is what we hear. Huh. You don't need God. There's nothing to fear, for there is no God. We've evolved from lower life forms. Matter is eternal, therefore there's nothing spiritual. There is no God and there is no devil. My friends, look, the devil doesn't care if you don't believe there's a devil. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what you worship, except he doesn't want you to worship Jesus Christ. It's everywhere around us. Or, or he gets us believing that the devil is so big and so powerful and equal with God that somehow the universe is hanging in the balance so we are unduly fearful of him and give him too much credit and view God, our God, too small. Or you, Christian, he whispers in your ear, has God really said this? Does he really mean this? Will he really care for you if you obey him, if you trust him? Or he has us look at people who are fun and affable and winsome, beautiful people who promote worldly philosophies. I like that guy. Well, if it's okay for so-and-so to believe this or say this, I guess it's all right for me to do this or believe this. Satan gets us that way. You see, in all of these things, the word of God is the thing that shows and sheds light upon the world around us. As Satan's always there. He's always whispering. 
or he points out to you a crusty curmudgeon who speaks the truth, but because of how it is said, you discount that truth. On and on, the attacks are myriad, the schemes, the strategies are countless. How are you to counter these attacks? My friends, not in your own strength and not in your own wisdom. You understand, my friends, the apostle has laid out before the church this wonderful salvation, uh, chapters 1 through 5, up through here to verse 10. He lays out this wonderful salvation and this most important calling to be the Lord's witness. And our job as a congregation, our job as the church is huge. But we cannot do it in our own strength. And if we attempt to do it in our own strength, we will fail. We are engaged in this tremendous battle. And the church is called to stand firm, to resist, and not to lose ground. Satan is on the attack, and he will, um, and Jesus Christ will not lose. Our king has already won, but we are engaged in this battle. And yet we have suffered because we have neglected the whole armor of God. Because we go to battle in our own strength, unbelieving, or not near God, cloaked in the strength that only he can provide, we do fail. So as we begin going through this, and I promise you someday we will get to Daniel, but because of the things we've been going through, I thought it might be good for us to engage this passage of scripture again. The last time we looked at this was 11 years ago. And so we're going to be going through this again. Because I think we've forgotten who our real enemy is. So I want to encourage you finally in this. Everyone who is a member has said that they believe in Jesus Christ. You know how easy it is for people to say a prayer. Oh, and the church loves it when we could do checklists and say, look, they did this and we've got this many members. Right? But oftentimes the church is filled with plastic plants and they don't produce real fruit even though it looks like there's real fruit on it. The Christian is the man who's broken over his sin and he turns to Christ and he says, Christ, unless you save me, I can't be saved. Be merciful to me. And he turns, he turns 180 degrees away from his sin and from the flesh and he says, I will follow Jesus Christ and I will do so and it'll be hard but I will follow because I know, Lord, in you alone there is life. And he calls us to follow him. That Christian looks to Christ. Christ is his righteousness. And he picks up the word and he attends to the means of grace. He comes to worship. He listens to sermons. He comes to Sunday school. He listens to the word. He reads the word. He prays uh, from the word. And he prays over his children. He prays with his wife. He's constantly praying. He looks to the means that God has provided in order to fight the battle. Know Christ, know his word. Pick up and read. Look, daily reading plans are a great benefit. Sometimes they're not a benefit. Find out what works for you. You have a Bible, pick it up and read it. Five minutes is better, better than nothing. Pick it up and read it. Know who the Lord is. Seek the Lord in prayer. Again, I'm not asking you to get up at four in the morning and pray till eight in the morning. I'm not asking to do that. You could do what my mother did. On the way to shuttling children back and forth from school and activity, she says, I'm praying in the midst of the car. 
her husband's coming home. She's making a meal. And she's like, oh, Lord, I don't have hardly anything here to make a meal with. Uh, help him to like it. She's praying while she's cooking in the kitchen. And my father comes home. Thank you. That was a wonderful meal. Praying all the time. Because you need it. Because you feel your need of the Lord. And then, my friends, trust and obey. Be childlike in your faith. Childlike. Grandpa, can I have a piece of cheese? Of course. All my grandchildren are going to get cheese if they want it. What's beautiful, they never think that I'm going to pull a, a snake out of the meat drawer in the refrigerator. Why? Because they trust me. And if they can trust an evil man like me, they can trust the Lord. And so can you. Trust the Lord, my friends. Do what the Bible tells you because it is the inspired, inerrant word of God. We'll continue to go through this in the weeks to come. But I want to encourage you that in the midst of the trials in which we find ourselves now, the place to begin is with Jesus Christ, being united to him in faith, reading his word and praying, and like a child, trusting what he says. You won't go wrong. That's the place to begin. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you uh, for your word, and I pray that your blessing be upon your people that you will help us, Lord, in the midst of the, the spiritual battles in which we are engaged. We confess to you that we have so often discounted this aspect, this aspect of the Christian life, that we have underestimated up, uh, what we are up, up against. And so we ask, Father, that we would again come back to the word of your truth, the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ, the peace that has been secured for us, that we would continue to believe and trust your word and act in obedience. Help us, we pray. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand, asking that you would bring rescue. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.